Hey, this is the second section of the sounds chapter where Henry talks about trains and the sounds of trains and also the sounds of screech owls and souls that sound as if they've come back from the dead. Give a listen. Commerce is unexpectedly confident and serene, alert, adventurous, and unwearied. It is very natural in its methods withal, far more so than many fantastic enterprises and sentimental experiments, and hence its singular success. I am refreshed and expanded when the freight train rattles past me, and I smell the stores which go dispensing their odors all the way from Long Wharf to Lake Champlain, reminding me of foreign parts, of coral reefs and Indian oceans and tropical climes and the extent of the globe. I feel more like a citizen of the world at the sight of the palm leaf, which will cover so many flax and New England heads the next summer, the manila hemp and coconut husks, the old junk, gunny bags, scrap iron, and rusty nails. This carload of torn sails is more legible and interesting now than if they should be wrought into paper and printed books. Who can write so graphically the history of the storms they have weathered as these rents have done? They are proof sheets which need no correction. Here goes lumber from the main woods, which did not go out to sea in the last freshet, risen four dollars on the thousand because of what did go out or was split up. Pine, spruce, cedar, first, second, and fourth qualities, so lately all of one quality, to wave over the bear and moose and caribou. Next rolls Thomason lime, a prime lot, which will get far among the hills before it gets slacked. These rags and bales, of all hues and qualities, the lowest condition to which cotton and linen descend, the final result of dress, of patterns which are now long, no longer cried up, unless it be in Milwaukee, as those splendid articles, English, French, or American prints, ginghams, muslins, etc., gathered from all quarters, both of fashion and poverty, going to become paper of one color or a few shades only, on which forsooth will be written tales of real life, high and low, and founded on fact. These closed car smells of salt fish, the strong New England and commercial scent, reminding me of the grand banks and the fisheries. Who has not seen a salt fish, thoroughly cured for this world, so that nothing can spoil it, and putting the perseverance of the saints to the blush, with which you may sweep or pave the streets, and split your kindlings, and the teamster shelter himself in his ladling against sun, wind, and rain behind it, and the trader, as a conquered trader once did, hang it up by his door for a sign when he commences business, until at last his oldest customer cannot tell surely whether it be animal, vegetable, or mineral, and yet it shall be pure as a snowflake, and if it be put into a pot and boiled, will come out an excellent dun fish for the Saturday's dinner. Next, Spanish hides, with the tails still preserving their twist and the angle of elevation they had when the oxen that wore them were careering over the pampas of the Spanish main, a type of all obstinacy, and evincing how almost hopeless and incurable are all constitutional vices. 
I confess that, practically speaking, when I have learned a man's real disposition, I have no hopes of changing it for the better or worse in this state of existence. As the Orientals say, a cur's tail may be warmed and pressed and bound round with ligatures, and after a twelve years' labor bestowed upon it, still it will retain its natural form. The only effectual cure for such inveteracies as these tales exhibit is to make glue of them, which I believe is what is usually done with them, and then they will stay put and stick. Here is a hog's head of molasses or of brandy directed to John Smith, Cuttingsville, Vermont, some trader among the Green Mountains, who imports for the farmers near his clearing, and now, perchance, stands over his bulkhead and thinks of the last arrivals on the coast, how they may affect the price for him telling his customers this moment, as he has told them twenty times before this morning, that he expects some by the next train of prime quality. It is advertised in the Cuttingsville Times. While these things go up, other things come down. Warned by the whizzing sound, I look up from my book and see some tall pine hewn on far northern hills, which has winged its way over the Green Mountains and the Connecticut, shot like an arrow through the township within ten minutes, and scarce another eye beholds it, going, to be the mast of some great admiral. And hark, here comes the cattle train bearing the cattle of a thousand hills, sheep stables and cow yards in the air, drovers with their sticks and shepherd boys in the midst of their flocks, all but the mountain pastures, whirled along like leaves blown from the mountains by the September gales. The air is filled with the bleeding of calves and sheep and the hustling of oxen, as if a pastoral valley were going by. When the old bellwether at the head rattles his bell, the mountains do indeed skip like rams and the little hills like lambs. A carload of drovers, too, in the midst, on a level with their droves now, their vocation gone, but still clinging to their useless sticks as their badge of office. But their dogs, where are they? It is a stampede to them. They are quite thrown out. They have lost the scent. Methinks I hear them barking behind the Peterborough Hills or panting up the western slope of the Green Mountains. They will not be in at the death. Their vocation, too, is gone. Their fidelity and sagacity are below par now. They will slink back to their kennels in disgrace or perchance run wild and strike a league with the wolf and the fox. So is your pastoral life world past and away. But the bell rings, and I must get off the track and let the cars go by. What's the railroad to me? I never go to see where it ends. It fills a few hollows and makes banks for the swallows. It sets the sand a-blowing and the blackberries a-growing. But I cross it like a cart path in the woods. I will not have my eyes put out and my ears spoiled by its smoke and steam and hissing. Now that all the cars are gone by, and all the restless world with them, and the fishes in the pond no longer feel their rumbling, I am more alone than ever. For the rest of the long afternoon, perhaps, my meditations are interrupted only by the faint rattle of a carriage or team along the distant highway. Sometimes on Sundays, I heard the bells, the Lincoln, Acton, Bedford, or Concord bell, when the wind was favorable, a faint, sweet, and, as it were, natural melody, worth importing into the wilderness. At a sufficient distance over the woods, this sound acquires a certain vibratory hum, 
as if the pine needles in the horizon were the strings of a harp which it swept. All sound heard at the greatest possible distance produces one and the same effect, a vibration of the universal lyre, just as the intervening atmosphere makes a distant ridge of earth interesting to our eyes by the azure tint it imparts to it. There came to me in this case a melody which the air had strained and which had conversed with every leaf and needle of the wood, that portion of the sound which the elements had taken up and modulated and echoed from veil to veil. The echo is, to some extent, an original sound, and therein is the magic and charm of it. It is not merely a repetition of what was worth repeating in the bell, but partly the voice of the wood, the same trivial words and notes sung by a wood nymph. At evening, the distant lowing of some cow in the horizon beyond the woods sounded sweet and melodious, and at first I would mistake it for the voices of certain minstrels by whom I was sometimes serenaded, who might be straying over hill and dale, but soon I was not unpleasantly disappointed when it was prolonged into the cheap and natural music of the cow. I do not mean to be satirical, but to express my appreciation of those youths singing. When I state that I perceived clearly that it was akin to the music of the cow, and they were at length one articulation of nature. Regularly, at half-past seven, in one part of the summer, after the evening train had gone by, the whippoorwills chanted their vespers for half an hour, sitting on a stump by my door, or upon the ridgepole of my house. They would begin to sing almost with as much precision as a clock, within five minutes of a particular time, referred to the setting of the sun every evening. I had a rare opportunity to become acquainted with their habits. Sometimes I heard four or five at once in different parts of the wood, by accident one a bar behind another, and so near me that I distinguished not only the cluck after each note, but so often that singular buzzing sound like a fly in a spider's web, only proportionally louder. Sometimes one would circle round and round me in the woods a few feet distant, as if tethered by a string, when probably I was near its eggs. They sang at intervals throughout the night and were again as musical as ever, just before and about dawn. When other birds are still the screech, owls take up the strain. When other birds are still, the screech owls take up the strain. Like mourning women, their ancient ululu. Their dismal scream is truly Ben Jonesian. Wise midnight hags. It is no honest and blunt to wit to woo of the poets, but without jesting, a most solemn graveyard ditty, the mutual consolation of suicide lovers remembering the pangs and delights of supernal love in the infernal groves. Yet I love to hear their wailing, their doleful responses trilled along the woodside, reminding me sometimes of music and singing birds, as if it were the dark and tearful side of music, the regrets and sighs that would fain be sung. They are the spirits, the low spirits and melancholy forebodings of fallen souls that once in human shape night walked the earth and did the deeds of darkness, now expiating their sins with their wailing hymns or threnodies in the scenery of their transgressions. They give me a new sense of the variety and capacity of that nature, which is our common dwelling. Ooh.
that I never had been born. Sighs one on the side of the pond and circles with the restlessness of despair to some new perch on the gray oaks. Then, that I never had been born. Echoes another on the farther side with tremulous sincerity and born comes faintly from far in the Lincoln woods. I was also serenaded by a hooting owl. Near at hand, you could fancy it the most melancholy sound in nature, as if she meant by this to stereotype and make permanent in her choir the dying moans of a human being, some poor weak relic of mortality who has left hope behind and howls like an animal, yet with human sobs on entering the dark valley, made more awful by a certain gurgling melodiousness. I find myself beginning with the letters GL when I try to imitate it, expressive of a mind which has reached the gelatinous mildewy stage in the mortification of all healthy and courageous thought. It reminded me of ghouls and idiots and insane howlings. But now one answers from far woods in a strain made really melodious by distance. Who, 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 or who? And indeed, for the most part, it suggested only pleasing associations, whether heard by day or night, summer or winter. I rejoice that there are owls. Let them do the idiotic and maniacal hooting for men. It is a sound admirably suited to swamps and twilight woods, which no day illustrates, suggesting a vast and undeveloped nature which men have not recognized. They represent the stark twilight and unsatisfied thoughts which all have. All day the sun has shone on the surface of some savage swamp where the single spruce stands hung with usnia lichens and small hawks circulate above and the chickadee lisps amid the evergreens and the partridge and rabbit skulk beneath. But now a more dismal and fitting day dawns and a different race of creatures awakes to express the meaning of nature there. Late in the evening, I heard the distant rumbling of wagons over bridges, a sound heard further than almost any other at night, the baying of dogs, and sometimes again the lowing of some disconsolate cow in the distant barnyard. In the meanwhile, all the shore rang with the trump of bullfrogs, the sturdy spirits of ancient wine-bibbers and wassailers, still unrepentant, trying to sing a catch in their Stygian lake, if the Walden nymphs will pardon the comparison. For though there are almost no weeds, there are frogs here, who would fain keep up the hilarious rules of their own vestal tables, through their voices have waxed hoarse and solemnly grave, mocking at mirth, and the wine has lost its flavor. To become only liquor, to distend their paunches, and sweet intoxication never comes to drown the memory of the past, but mere saturation and waterloggedness and distension. The most aldermaniac, with his chin upon a heart leaf, which serves for a, map, a napkin to his drooling chaps, under this northern shore, quaffs a deep draught of the once scorned water and passes round the cup with the ejaculation, trunk, 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 
and straightway comes over the water from some distant cove, the same password repeated where the next in seniority and girth has gulped down to his mark. And when his, this observance had made the circuit of the shores, then ejaculates the master of ceremonies with satisfaction, trunk, And each in his turn re- repeats the same down to the least distended, leakiest and flabbiest paunched, that there be no mistake. And then the bowl goes round again and again until the sun disperses the morning mist and only the patriarch is not under the pond, but vainly bellowing trunk from time to time and pausing for a reply. I'm not sure that I ever heard the sound of cock crowing from my clearing, and I thought that it might be worth the while to keep a cock crow for his music merely as a singing bird. The note of this once wild Indian pheasant is certainly the most remarkable of any birds, and if they could be naturalized without being domesticated, it would soon become the most famous sound in our woods, surpassing the clangor of the goose and the hooting of the owl, and then imagine the cackling of the hens to fill the pauses when their lord's clarions rested. No wonder that man added this bird to his tame stock, to say nothing of the eggs and drumsticks. To walk in the winter morning in a wood where these birds abounded, their native woods, and hear the wild cockerels crow on the trees, clear and shrill for miles above the resounding earth, drowning the feebler notes of the other birds. Think of it. It would put nations on the alert. Who would not be early to rise, and rise earlier and earlier every successive day of his life, till he became unspeakably healthy, wealthy, and wise? This foreign bird's note is celebrated by the poets of all countries along with the notes of their native songsters. All climates agree with the brave Chanticleer. He is more indigenous even than the natives. His health is ever good. His lungs are sound. His spirits never flag. Even the sailor on the Atlantic and Pacific is awakened by his voice. But its shrill sound never roused me from my slumbers. I kept neither dog, cat, cow, pig, nor hens, so that you would have said that there was a deficiency of domestic sounds. Neither the churn, nor the spinning wheel, nor even the singing of the kettle, nor the hissing of the urn, nor children crying, to comfort one. An old-fashioned man would have lost his senses, or died of ennui before this. Not even rats in the wall, for they were starved out, or rather were never baited in. Only squirrels on the roof and under the floor, a whippoorwill on the ridgepole, a blue jay screaming beneath the window, a hare or woodchuck under the house, a screech owl or cat owl behind it, a flock of wild geese or a laughing loon on the pond, and a fox to bark in the night. Not even a lark or an oriole, those mild plantation birds, ever visited my clearing. No cockerels to crow nor hens to cackle in the yard. No yard! But unfenced nature reaching up to your very sills, a young forest growing up under your windows, and wild sumacs and blackberry vines breaking through into your cellar, sturdy pitch pines rubbing and creaking against the shingles for want of room, their roots reaching quite under the house. Instead of a scuttle or a blind blown off in a gale, a pine tree snapped off or torn up by the roots behind your house for fuel. Instead of no path to the front yard gate in the great snow, no gate, no front yard and no path to the civilized world. Hey, I just read the uh, second part of the sounds chapter 
Um, and I feel like every time I read a new chapter or a new section, um, I want to say that it's my favorite. And I think this one um, was my favorite in the way that um, it seemed like a little bit of a departure from um, what like the rest of the, the book so far, because um, he talks, you know, he's sort of in the middle of talking about the train section. Um, and that section is really just beautiful because he's just imagining and I guess even smelling like does the train stop it can he sort of actually wander in or is he just sort of observing um the things you know when he actually sees what's being unloaded from the train um because this is kind of a you know an invasion of civilization probably several times a day for him um and the way that he but the way that he talks about the train and and he's really getting into the sounds of it um and also the whole the whole idea that these sounds are bringing um, these elements of the outside world right to his door and, you know, and contrast that with like, there's no path to the civilized world. Um, but of course the train is sort of making the most obvious path. Um, and then he, he gets into this really beautiful section about um, the scary stuff um, at night and the sounds of nature that he hears. Um, it's really beautiful, all the whippoorwills and the, the frogs. And um, I, I apologize if any of my, uh, if many of my interpretations um, sounded weird. He, uh, he puts a lot of this in italics. So every time I did kind of a weird sound, it was um, italics, just to warn you. Um, I'm, so I'm recording this on July 4th, um, 2021. And the sort of as a side note, the the governor of Massachusetts had just, um, you know, proposed a bill increasing fines um, for swimming in, you know, quote unquote, non-designated areas. Um, and in addition, the um, Department of Conservation and Recreation, DCR, which I think is controlled by the governor, um, put out an edict, essentially, um, that bans um, swimming in Walden beyond the roped-off area. Um, and for those of you who... Um, and so anyway, I, I will admit that I am a swimmer. And um, I, like a regular swimmer, I've grown up near Walden. I think I've told you this. I swim as often as I can in the summertime. I really love it. It's one of the most beautiful things in the world. And in previous chapters, there's a line that says, you know, I... I, they, where Henry says, I bathed every morning and that was the best thing I did while I was there. Um, and I absolutely believe that. And the, like, and I'm not the only one, the, the whole open water swimming crowd is really um, fighting the, the fines and the Walden ban. And I think we're all like, I'm, I'm shocked, um, especially because it was announced without any any notice, any preparation, um, it was, it was done essentially to address, um, a lot of drownings that have happened throughout the state. Um, none at Walden, I might say, uh, at least not this year. Um, and in my experience, you know, it's, drownings are horrible. In my experience, the swimmers that drown, or, it's, or at least this past year, 
Um, sometimes it's a combination of factors. Usually it's a combination of factors um, where, you know, maybe an, an, an inexperienced swimmer um, or someone gets into a situation that's unknown or, you know, beyond their level of experience um, or, you know, there's a surprise, you know, people and, and I hate to say people have certainly drowned in Walden. Um, sometimes it's heart attacks. Sometimes it's just getting into water deeper than they really know how to deal with. Um, but I would, I would definitely say that Walden is one of the safest places to really go out, um, you know, and get in quote unquote in a rear head, um, because it's usually very well populated, um, especially during the day, especially during the summer. Um, so that if you do get into trouble, it like there are lifeguards on the main beach. Um, but then there are also usually other people around. Um, that's not saying that people who don't know how to swim or people who are, who think that they are brave should go. Um, the, the, I, the, the whole fact that the beach is, um, and the shore is, is not that far, even from the center of the lake of the pond. Um, that's another layer of safety. So if you're, if there's a cramp or if you, you know, are not feeling good or, you know, if, like somebody had a heart attack, you know, and, you know, if you, if you are lucky enough to realize that you are, um, you know, not doing well, or if you're scared or if you're too cold, or if you feel something where you do need to get to shore, the shore is usually close enough, um, to, to get to, um, it, this is, this is one of those things where it's, um, it's the, the joy of swimming, inside the middle of Walden through the center of Walden, um, is something that is sort of indescribable. Um, and for me, it's something that I really want to focus on and emphasize. And to bring this back to the, to this whole chapter, um, one of the parts where he talks about, you know, the train passing by, um, you know, and he, and he mentions, the, um, now that the cars are gone by and all the restless world with them and the fishes in the pond no longer feel their rumbling, he says he is more alone than ever. Um, the Boston area is, you know, not necessarily the most crowded in America. Like I've lived in New York. I, I know what crowds are. Um, but I would definitely say that I grew up thinking that pavement was one of those natural occurrences in the world and I was always amazed when when the road would peter out and turn into a dirt road um plenty of places are are I would say most of the surrounding area feels paved and civilized and very tamed to me and woods even though I grew up on the edge of a woods um it feels like that's a very distinct section um, and it's still very hard to find a place in Boston where you feel completely alone, you know, or just alone with nature. Um, and even in, even in Henry's day, obviously he's hearing the trains. So only after the train passes, does he actually feel alone? Um, but being out in the center of Walden, um, you know, you feel, you feel completely independent, like personally, I feel refreshed that I get to step away from my phone. I get to step away from social media. I don't, 
I don't, you know, I don't, some people, you know, take their phones with them or, you know, wear watches or whatever. Um, I, I, I don't do that. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I go, um, and I feel completely alone and independent and still safe. You know, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing to flow out in the middle of the pond, but you can always hear the train. And right now it's a commuter train. And for me, and so I like, I'm saying this because I honestly, I relate to those fishes who feel the rumbling of the train. Um, And every time that I'm out there in the middle of the pond, and I would say that the train comes by maybe if I'm, if I'm out in the water for two hours, um, because I usually definitely take my time. I think, I think I can probably do it in half an hour, go, go all the way across and back. But I usually prefer to take two hours because I just, I just love to extend my time there. Um, and the train will pass like two or three times during that time if I'm doing it in the middle of the day. And I look up and I see all of the commuters and, you know, good for them. <laughs> I have certainly been a commuter looking out at beaches um, and looking longingly at the people on the beach or the people in the water. Um, I think that this whole interaction of this, um, of the world and this spot of nature um, has always been like a big, a big issue, you know, it's, it's like, do we, do we leave nature alone? And I, I think this is like, this is a much larger issue than Walden in general. Um, But, you know, we love nature when it is pristine, right? And what does pristine mean, right? People are not there to hurt it. Uh, And, and but how do we interact with pristine nature unless we go there unless we actually visit and take pictures and you know like if it, the whole thing if a tree falls in the forest um is anybody there to hear it and you know does it make a sound um and it's like the 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 principle of watching the atoms like the the you know, by, by watching it, you are changing it. Um, but if you don't, you know, but also pragmatically, like if there's nobody there, then there's nobody there to fight for it. Um, in back in 1985, there was actually a movement to close down Walden to swimming at all. Um, which I, I personally can't fathom. Like I, I, I think that that's, that would definitely be an overreaction. Um, the people who, who were talking in that way. And the argument was that it was too pristine and that it shouldn't be, um, touched essentially because it was too holy. Um, and, and also frankly, that was the time that there was a, a concrete pier on the main beach. Like I used to swim there when I was a kid. Um, and right at that moment was the time when they were redoing the shore and they were trying to rethink how Walden would be used. Um, I remember going there as a kid with kids of all ages being really raucous around, you know, the edge of the beach and, and just being kids. Um, and you know, and this is the thing, kids will be kids and people in hot weather are going to swim. Um, so the whole idea of the governor putting forth a bill, like increasing fines, if you swim in these places and, and Walden trying to prevent people from swimming, um, beyond the, the ropes at all, 
um, it's just encouraging people to go into more dangerous waters, literally. Um, Walden is a place that doesn't really have um, plants growing in, in the water on the ground. So, you know, there are some areas where like the mud is extra slimy, um, but there's nothing that sort of can reach out and um, and that you can get tangled in if you're near the surface of the water. Um, they maintain it so that, you know, I was always worried that a tree would fall and you could get grabbed by one of the branches from a fallen tree. I've never experienced that. Um, there are no, you know, <laughs> there are no animals there that are going to attack you. There are no sharks. Um, it's not the ocean where, with the, you know, unpredictable tides. Um, you know, there are, it, it's, it really is one of the safest places to be. And it's one of the safest places to explore and enjoy and, um, and to feel alone. Um, I think in this whole chapter when he's, especially when he's talking about stuff at night and just how, um, like, I don't think he's, he's necessarily scared, but he mentions that he thinks of like ghosts and ghouls and that these owls do sound like, like the, the cries of the dead. Um, so it's spooky and nature itself is, you know, can be frightening to a human. Night is frightening to humans, but you know, there's also the argument of like, we should, we should embrace it. We should understand what the noises of the night are. Um, if you were to build a cabin, you know, like it, it's always been my fantasy to have like a writer's retreat where they reconstruct the cabin exactly in the place where he had it. Um, and just, you know, put a writer in there for a year or two. Um, and so today's July 4th. So this was literally the day that he, he moved in, um, you know, and he was there for two years, two months and two days. So there should be like a writing residency where somebody just, you know, lives in the, that cabin. Um, but if I were to do it and I would love to do it, by the way, um, I do know that I would, I would be terrified at night. Um, just because of the animals that you know, and then also the animals that you don't know. A few weeks ago, there was a bear that approached the edge of Walden. Um, there, there are pictures there. I, so I, I run, I run a Facebook group called Transcendentalist 2021. There's a picture of a bear, um, at Walden a few weeks from a few weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I would be scared, but I also think that it would be one of those, like, I feel like you have to realize where the challenges are in your life and how you can go just beyond your level of comfort, you know, get out of your comfort zone, push yourself just a little in a way that you know is safe and doable, right? Like I have friends who jump out of airplanes. I have friends who like quit their job and start up a whole new career. Um, you know, and there are people who, you know, bet ridiculous sums of money on things that may or may not work out. Um, I, you know, I feel like all of us have our own sense of what is practical and what is adventurous. Maybe it's getting a new haircut. Maybe it's moving to a new place. Maybe it's, um, you know, maybe it's swimming in Walden. <laughs> and I feel like, I feel, at least for me, I feel like swimming in Walden is one of those things that you know, because I, for many years, I was one of those kids who hung out um, on that beach and just stayed within the ropes. And then I was probably like 17 or 18, graduating from high school. And I was kind of like, all right, I'm going to be an adult now. What do I do to prove that? 
and I, uh, I started swimming out beyond the ropes and then I went further and further. And then one day I was like, Hey, you know what? I've, I'm, I've swum past Red Cross beach, um, which is about halfway across the pond. And I was like, why don't I swim all the way to, uh, Henry's cabin? And I did. And, you know, I, I got out and, and I think the clouds had, had already started to, um, had started to cover the sky. So it seemed a little dark. And I was like, oh shit, I don't have a watch with me. I really, I have no idea how long this takes. So like, what if I swim back and like the sun has already set and, you know, I, it was probably like three in the afternoon or something in the middle of summer, but I was still like, oh my God, I have to get back. Um, and then as I was swimming back for the very first time, the clouds broke and I saw blue skies above me. And uh, I just remember being extremely happy and satisfied that I had been able to accomplish something. Um, you know, probably what Henry is talking about when he's like listening to the birds at dawn, you know, um, like all those, all those people like, you know, like ghost hunters or whatever, who, who force themselves to stay in a haunted house overnight. You know, there's, there's some kind of relief when you know that, um, the achievement, you know, the, the sun is rising, you know, you're, you're swimming back safely and you've made it back to safety. Um, I think that that's, that's also part of what his chapter is about. Um, and that's my interpretation of what it's like to swim, that it's something that you, that you challenge yourself. And my God, if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't ever decided to to do that because it's it's literally one of the my most favorite things to do in the world um just to have two hours of peace and quiet and your eye level with the water and you notice things you notice the sky you notice clouds you notice the birds um all the all the things that you don't notice and like I try to meditate I try to do I try to read I I you know I I have all of this quiet in my life but swimming is one of the most beautiful, highly focused, highly calming um, experiences where you can interact, where I can interact directly with nature. Um, and it's really a beautiful thing. So I encourage everybody to get um, outside of your comfort zone, even if it's just a little, um, even if it's not swimming in Walden Pond, find something beautiful, um, you know, whether it's hiking in the woods or sitting out by a beautiful view or watching the sunset or whatever. Um, and also try to do something that scares you just a little, um, but also that keeps you safe. Um, I'm going to keep fighting <laughs> so that everybody can um, swim in the water and that Henry isn't the only one that has access to Walden. Um, because the way that he's written this, it's definitely something that he's sharing with the world. And if at all possible, you should try to visit Walden, um, and try to experience what he's experiencing. Um, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like I said, he, he, um, he said that bathing was one of the best things he did while he was there and his entry for his journal, um, from July 3rd, I think 1852 or something like that. Um, he has a whole section of like, I cannot get wet enough, <laughs> And that's a whole other um, thing. He talks about swimming a lot um, and he calls it bathing. And, and he had actually even 
um, walked the Concord River. Um, he used to, to just walk, you know, wearing only his hat, by the way, the Concord River, which is like full of weeds on the bottom, um, grass ground river. Um, and so anyway, yeah, interact with the water if you can, um, especially, especially if you can, uh, you know, find something, find something new in it and something beautiful. All right. Stay safe out there, everyone. And, uh, and please rescind the open water swimming band at Walden. It makes us very, very sad. And we all want to go swimming. <laughs> all right. Take care.